Welcome back to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And Act 2 is a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter, which this podcast is just one of the cool things we do. So thank you for joining us here, especially because today is a long-awaited day. We mm-hmm. have talked about this moment since I think like season one of when we started recording. Josh, would you like to introduce our guest today? It's my manager. It's, <laughs> it's the best manager in Hollywood. He, I was like, you're saying it very fearfully. <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking about how I could do this introduction. It is John Zauzerny, the from Bellevue. I don't like I feel like there's no need to actually give like, you know, the backstory, the history of like what you do and and where you're like like who you rap because you tell a story of how we met i honestly don't remember at the exact moment this is the exact moment in time how we met but like oh well i'm actually happy we brought this up because there's been a little there's there's a little confusion on this because tasha and i've talked about this before and mm. i actually in in my side of the story i feel like i was just supposed to be in your life because what had happened with <laughs> me is i'm happy with that answer i was i had a really bad one other manager before you he was terrible. I think we sort of mm. may have talked about this for a minute. And so I was without a manager and I had like PTSD. Then Tasha was like, you know, I met this guy named John and I feel like you guys might hit it off. And I was like, oh, all right. Well, I think you're right, Pasha. You did. I, I do not. Re- it was like, I think someone else introduced you at the same exact time. I swear to God. I think it was Nikki, actually, it, uh, Josh. It was. Yeah, I think. I think it came in from two different people, and I was like, "Oh, this is interesting." Yeah, you know? and then yeah, then it is kismet. kismet I mean, thing, I yeah. came first, obviously. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I know. So I, I, that's how that's how you and I know each other, and it's been great ever since. I remember. I don't know how anyone can get in a room with you, Josh, and want to work with you. I you're, agree. You are the most charming, wow. uh, so charming. positive. You're a ray of sunshine in human form. So I was like, "There's money to be made here." <laughs> <laughs> wow how I, do i milk this if sunshine I like this, if i like this person other people must like them because i have i have a high bar so therefore everyone else you know. honestly we're fucking done <laughs> all right all right, all right. josh hallman love hour i know i have to collect myself well i'm actually going to do a little jay-z love hour for a second because i am curious because one of you know I, we had some questions little organization to the podcast here I was going to kind of ask you what the day-to-day is of Jay-Z. But before I do that, I just want to say, like, I feel like we have a really great relationship. Like, any time I ever talk to... I feel like, uh-oh. Is this <laughs> no, I, I do. And so I, I'm like, is this normal? Because I sometimes, when I've talked to other people with their manager, like, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I'm like, no, I love my manager. He's like my friend. He's he always You always tell me the truth. You always have a reason behind uh, your opinion, even if I come to you with some crazy fucking idea. And I'm like, Jay-Z, you'll hear me out. You'll actually listen to me and be like, okay. And then give me a reason to why I'm crazy. And, and as opposed to just being like, no, man, no. And so I feel like, is that how normal relationships are with managers? Like, I don't think so. Like, I, I feel like you and I, I you know, it's, it's, a, it's interesting. I mean, first off, that's very kind of you to say, I'm sure there are people who have worked with me uh, either well, hopefully not still working with me. I'm sure there there are people who who you know who I've dropped or they've dropped me, and because they didn't feel like we didn't have the right click or mm-hmm. whatever, and that doesn't mean that like 
there was bad blood there necessarily. I'm sure there are some people I've worked with and we're not working together and they're irritated. It's just the nature of working together with enough people, you know, who feel like I didn't hear them out enough or this or that, you know, especially when you get into creative industries, there's a lot of emotion. You know, I never worked in representation prior to being, um, uh, a representative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't have any sort of strong feelings about the culture. In fact, there's a lot of things that I do, um, like the circle of trust. I don't know if you talked about that on the podcast, no. but like there's things in that, which we can talk about that I do that I don't think other managers would do because it goes against, if you were trained at an agency or something, it goes against the ideas that you would be trained at an agency to do. So there's things that I do that come from being a producer or having, you know, wanting to come up as a writer or work in development or whatever that are not the norm for representation. So I just have always gone by like, I I act the way that I would want someone to have acted towards me, you know? Um, And also what people want from representatives is, you know, different people want different things. There are people who want managers um, and representatives will just be like, you're a genius. I agree with everything you say. I'm taking it out right now. You know? Yeah. Um, they want, they want yes people, you know, um, other people want, you know, I'm probably someone they're like, I want a, a manager who can package, which, you know, it's rare to hear, but, and I'm, they're not a lot of people who can do that necessarily, but I'm, if you want that, sure. That's not what I do, you know? Um, and so, you know, I think in terms of the relationship, I, I think our relationship is, for me, a model, uh, you know, certainly we're very, I mean, we're also real friends, you know, like, um, I'm very lucky in the fact that I'm very, I'm good friends with a lot of my clients, not everyone, you know, I would say I'm friendly with everybody you'd hope to be, obviously. But, um, you know, it's just different. Some people you get along better, and some people you get along with worse. But like, you know, I think it springs from, to some degree, the person who kind of got me to be a manager, certainly was a real kick in the butt, was Ian Shore, who I'd worked with previously. Now, Ian had not started off as a friend. Ian was just a writer who I'd read his work. I liked it. We met. He pitched me an idea. I counter-pitched him back. I mean, Ian can tell the story better than I can, but he's initially like, fuck that guy. Who does he think he is to tell me, you know, things? And then he's like, I guess he took like a week and he's like, actually, those ideas were pretty good. And he came back in and like, we started working together. And so we became friends through working together, which is kind of interesting as opposed to working with a friend. We worked together and we respected each other's opinions and we, we liked the same things and we became friends. And then eventually after having worked together for like five years or something, four years, he was like, I think you should be a manager. You should be my manager. Um, and, you know, having taking him on really set me on the course towards it. So he was someone who was my friend. He was, you know, eventually was the guy who, when I got married, was the was the efficient. And, and obviously also my wife is one of my clients, although mm-hmm. she predates me being a manager. So it wasn't like and she was a client. She just my wife. And it seemed to make sense. She encouraged me to be a manager. So, yeah. you know, I do have a good relationship and I feel lucky. I, you know, I always read these articles about how hard it is for people to make friends after a certain age. Um, especially men, apparently. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, it's like a th- I like I would see article like men can't make any friends after thirty five or something like that. You know, I don't know. It's like certain articles like always circle around like it's like that, and that like wine is good for you or something. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, there must be an audience for it. It is. I feel really fortunate in that I'm always meeting new people, and you know, obviously it, the focus is on clients or meeting potential executives to work with or whatever. But a lot of times, you know. Well, you like movies. I like movies. You know, that's why we do what we do or TV or whatever. Um, and so we end up becoming friends the way that you, you and I have become, you know, friends, Josh. So I think it is nice in that we have that. But I also appreciate that, you know, I can tell you sometimes, hey, like, 
I, I don't think this is a great idea or whatever. And you don't take it personally. Um, and then sometimes you're like, I'm still going to do it. And that's totally fine. You know, um, I respect, you know, I'm not the boss. I'm simply an advisor, you know? So I think we have a good relationship um, in that sense. So I, but I feel very lucky. And, you know, I'm not as close to all my clients as I am to you necessarily. I don't text with them about like Kanye West albums or anything <laughs> on the weekend. But I feel really lucky. I think also it helps a little bit to be at a smaller management company. You know, yeah. I have these pre-pandemic had these annual parties, as you remember. Oh, I and I love the first hour is always just for Bellevue clients. And I loved being able to introduce other clients to other clients. And, you know, I think if everyone, if you're like a client of like three arts and you're out like, oh man, so excited, you know, that three arts client sold their pilot. You're like, it's like, there's like a thousands of you, you know, and that's not a diss on three arts. It's just, it's a larger firm. But I really do think if a Bellevue client gets in the blacklist or has some success that hopefully other clients don't feel like it detracts. And hopefully there's a feeling of excitement about that. And it comes from being a smaller shop, I think, and a more intimate experience. Damn. That's, that's, you, you like touched on so many things that I actually want to. I know. I was about. like, this answer is, is very rambling. No, it's not <laughs> rambling at all. I, I feel like, all right, well, let me, let me step back. The day that you kind of, you may have touched, talked about this, but just like, what's your like day to day, like a manager's day to day? Well, the interesting thing is like, there is no one way that you operate per se. I would say there's three categories of actions that I'm taking. Uh, category one is the most obvious one, which is working with my existing clients. Mm -hmm. That can be doing a phone call to discuss their outline, their idea, their draft, strategy for the script that we're taking out, strategy for this, strategy for that, dealing with pre-existing client um, obligations, which is obviously the number one thing I do. The number two thing is meeting new people or meeting, reconnecting with people I already know, hearing about opportunities, putting clients up for opportunities. Oh, you're looking for a mid-level writer for this, this really cool idea. Great. I've got someone or someone else at my company has someone who's a good fit for that. So hearing what opportunities connecting, you know, the bad word for it would be networking, honestly. And it's yeah. not because when I think networking, I think a bunch of people go to a party and have name tags or something. <laughs> it's, it's not that, especially for me, I've been in the industry for 20 years at most, it's like, oh, you know what? I don't know that new VP over at Hello Sunshine. I'm going to call up and introduce myself yeah. or something, you know, see what they're looking for. More often, most often I do know the person. So it's like, hey, I saw you just started a new job. What are you looking for? Or I haven't talked to you in a minute. Or I heard about an opportunity or this or that, you know. Um, you know, and so it's a very quick kind of conversation. And then I would say the third kind of, you know, category would be, you know, reading new potential clients, reading scripts, reading material, an email comes in from the blacklist website and says, you know, our readers recommend and going through those log lines, see if anything resonates with me. And if it does, you know, clicking on the script and then downloading it for me to read, you know, yeah, maybe that night, but most likely the weekend or something. So, so those are kind of three categories and you kind of like, you know, and things come up like, Oh, I have a phone call, but a project that I'm a producer on or things like that. You know, I mean, it's interesting now that, you know, you don't really leave your home. I kind of get more, done now i was talking to one of my friends why i'm more active on twitter and it's like because previously i'd be like okay i need to be in my office at 10 a.m so i need to drive out to my office and then okay then i have a lunch at 1 p.m mm -hmm. so i need to leave at 12 30 to get to my 1 p.m lunch and then i'm at 1 p.m lunch and then two o'clock it's over roughly and then i gotta drive to a 2 30 or maybe i'm going to fox for a meeting so then i'm going to do that and then and so there's you know you're you're moving around a lot more and you're still doing things on the phone like you know on your call 
yeah. your car or something like that or shooting an email or something. But, you know, nowadays you're all in one location. It's rare to move around and maybe hopefully we'll start to go back to more quote unquote normalcy. Although yeah. I do feel like it'll still be a scenario where if you're like have a meeting on the West side and you're like, you don't live in Santa Monica, you're like, oh, can we do that as a Zoom yeah, instead, sure. you know? Uh, your lips to God's ears, I sure hope Yeah, so. well, it's really going to be up to you. Like, I'm sure if you're like, hey, can we make this a Zoom instead? They'll probably go for it. But if it's like something important, like, hey, that you're meeting with the president of the studio, you're gonna be like, okay, I'll do the in-person, you know? If it's, you know, it's, it's going to be one of the, in fact, it's going to be a different thing for writers where they're the right executives to be like, yeah, they just want to make this a Zoom. And you're like, wait, does that say something about me? Wait, no, I want to go. Yeah, I want to go inside. I want to pitch. I want to pitch in person. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I always feel like, the, you know, it's like sometimes, you know, I won't say who, but there's someone in my life and they're like, they're like, look, I don't want to go to the party. I just want to be invited to it, you know, <laughs> and be able to decline it, you know? Yeah, it, so that's kind of the day. It, it, it completely yeah. changes on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, today was kind of a, a bit of a quieter day, actually, because something had to get rescheduled. And then tomorrow I'm going to be in back to back up until like three or four o'clock, you know, so it completely and, changes on the data. And I kind of like that being, especially because I'm my own boss. Yeah. You know, I don't have like, oh, my God, there's five staff meetings tomorrow or something. Um, I, you know, I can like adjust my schedule and I like the spontaneity of it or the um, unpredictable mm-hmm. nature of it. Yeah. You know, of course, I don't have kids right now. So when I have kids, I might be like, I miss yeah, I need structure. Yeah, exactly. You know what I love about the entertainment industry? Let me just say, I feel like every you're rewarded when you're not rewarded always, but like you just have to hustle. Like everyone in every department and every part of asset of the entertainment industry. It never ends for better or for worse. It's Josh's it favorite part ends. of the business though, the hustle, I feel it, like. It is. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a weird, it just never ends. And I think that's the interesting thing that's been illuminating as my clients have kind of grown in stature and so on is that like you can be talking to someone who won an Oscar and they're still like, Oh man, I don't know where my next job's coming from, you know? Yeah. And like that may be a perception thing rather than the reality. The reality might be like there's five million people that die to work with them. But like, you know, there's always that feeling of insecurity. It never quite goes away, I don't think. Yeah, you just made me sick saying that. So let's move on to a different topic. <laughs> when I first was looking for managers, one of the first managers I ever met with was uh, he read my script and the script was kind of like an action-y bounty hunter script. And he's like, all right, Tasha, I'm going to turn you into an action writer and you're going to be like mm-hmm. the hot new female action writer person. And like, that's that's my plan for you. And that's like the brand that I'm going to create for you. And mm-hmm. I remember being like, okay, that's cool. I like action. I could do that. But like, I don't want that to be the only thing that I do. And so I didn't end Mm. up signing with this person for that reason. So my question Mm. to you is, do you feel like creating a brand is important for writers, particularly maybe new writers? And do you actively think about this when you're taking on someone new? I I think I wouldn't call it a brand per se. Um, I would say that like, it's almost like an expertise or a lane. Like, let's talk Mm. about like my wife, for example, so she broke in with a scripture called Blonde Ambition, which topped the 2016 blacklist. And that was a biopic of the early days of Madonna. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's not the only thing she's written since, but she's been brought a lot of music oriented projects in the time since. You know, she wrote Murder on the Dance Floor for Sony, which is this dance kind of murder mystery told through dance. She wrote a, did a rewrite of a project called Talent Show for Universal. Um, she wrote the Amy Winehouse movie. Um, and so, she, you know, she's writing Guys and Dolls right now with Bill Condon. Um, and so she does a lot of music oriented things. That said, she also wrote a thriller called Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. And she's working on lots of different stuff. I don't think there's anything wrong with having like a particular lane that you can 
because here's the thing, having worked in development, what you do is you'll meet with a writer and they'll be like, yeah, I love to write musicals and I love to write like female driven thrillers. And you're like, great. You have a list. And that list is like the thriller list, the music list, the people like that. And it's easy for them to like put you on that list, you know, and you can't be on every single list, at least not when you're starting your career. And I think it's perfectly okay not to be the only thing you write, but for that to be kind of the thing that people know you for and for that to be the thing that people come to you for. Like if people are coming to you at least for music, it, by the way, that was not the intent. We didn't start off being like, okay, what's a lane that we could get into at all? You know, it was not the intent, but it kind of worked that way. And, you know, I, like I, that's one of the reasons I would say if people are like, I'm, I'm writing a horror movie. And I'm like, why are you writing a horror movie? You know, reason number one, I always hear from people, oh, well, they're easy to make because people do them all the time, which means they don't even like horror movies. And I'm like, yeah. it's going to be bad anyways. But even if it was good, I'm like, well, do you want to write horror movies going forth? Oh, no, I don't like horror movies. I'm like, well, then why would you write one? Because if it's successful, people are like, cool, I liked your horror movie. Why don't you write another horror movie? I'm like, no, no, I want to write comedies. I'm like, well, then you better write a comedy movie because then I got to read, you know, because I don't have anything to go off of. Uh, it's, it's a natural instinct for people to be like, I read your music movie. I like it. I think you'd be read for this other music movie. Yeah. You understand the math in, a, in an executive's head. And so it is one of those things you kind of think about. And But I think you can move, you know, Elise went Ronda Wright Queens of the Stone Age and she gets brought thriller stuff all the time now because that kind of throwed her, thrill, her thriller chops. And so I don't think of it so much as getting boxed in or creating a brand, but I think what you're doing is giving people demonstrable examples of what you could do. So like Ian Shore has written Contained Horror. He's written Sci-Fi. You know, he's written big action blockbuster stuff. You know, I think if someone came to you and said, hey, we want you to write a straight drama, I think he'd be like, oh, I don't know. That's really what I do or what I'm excited by necessarily. When he gets broad stuff, they tend to be in the vein of the scripts that he's already written out there because it's an easy one to one correlation. And so I think you can always reinvent yourself. I think a lot about John August, who had written How to Eat Fried Worms and he was getting all this kid stuff. Yeah. And then he went and wrote Go. And that completely changed things that led to Charlie's Angels and things like that. And then he went and wrote, you know, I, I'm not sure how Big Fish came together, but like he he's the kind of person that can kind of do anything at this point and gets brought in for a lot. But you kind of have to build that script by script. Can I speak to that for a second? Because sure. I know a lot of young writers in particular who are like, I'm going to get ahead of that. Exactly what you're talking about. And I'm just going to mm -hmm. write all the genres. I'm going to have right. one of everything ready to go. So I have anything when anyone asks. Yeah. Do yeah. you recommend that or do you think that that's also the wrong path? I think it's the wrong path, and I'll and I'll tell you kind of why. Um, is because you're you're gonna have we can only take out one script at a time, right? We can only put all our effort. Like when I take out a script, and Josh knows this, I I go I tend to go unless there's exceptional circumstances. I tend to go pretty wide with it, like thirty. We're talking like you know mid twenties at least, but usually 30, 40 people. I'm going to something like Cauliflower, the script that was on the number on the blacklist. I think we went to like eighty to hundred people, you know, and we're like getting it out there to everybody. And we're putting all our energy towards making sure everyone in town reads that script, knows his name, wants to meet with him, getting him in those rooms, you know? And so you're doing that one script. And so you're going to do all the time on that thing. People are like, we loved your thriller. What other kind of stuff do you have? What's your next thriller? And if you're in the room and you're like, great, I wrote this wacky comedy. And they're going to be like, okay. Uh -huh. Like, but it, it's, it throws them a little bit. And like, yeah, they could read it and they'd be like, great. We love your wacky comedy. But generally you're trying to build these things step by step. And if we're really being honest, you know, your scripts tend to get better the more you go on. So you kind of like would learn a lot from that one great script. I'd rather have you the one phenomenal script. Like there's this whole argument of how many scripts you need to sign a client. And some people are like two minimum and three minimum. And I sign people off of one script all the time. You know, like that's just what I do. You know, like I don't need to second guess. I always believe if you can write one good script. You can write another good script. You know, some people need more proof or whatever. 
that certainly other managers do have like the two script rule. That's not how I operate, you know? Um, and so, but I, I put all my energy into that one thing. Now, sometimes I read a script as Josh kind of knows, and I'm like, this is a good script, but like, I feel like this isn't the right concept for us to take wide or the right thing. So let's develop, I can tell you're a talented writer, but I don't know this is the, the, this script is necessarily the vehicle that we want to take out to the rest of the town. And so we work on the, I say, well, where do you want to go? Well, I want to write action thriller movies. Okay, cool. Let's write a great action thriller that is the great sample that either hopefully can sell, but also will be a great sample for where you're going. You know, one of the things I've kind of learned, honestly, um, is, you know, whatever you write, people will take that as like where your career is heading. So I've had clients who've been on the blacklist uh, and even after being on the blacklist could not get an agent. And the reason they couldn't get an agent is because the agent read the script that was on the blacklist and said, hey, this is a good script, but I don't know where I can't make money from it. The thing that they've written is not something that um, is sale. A, this, we can sell the script and B what it's written. There are not a lot of gigs out there. OWA gigs, you know, rewrites, etc. If you are like a straight drama, they don't really make that many straight drama movies anymore. You know? Uh, I mean like, and I mean straight drama in the sense of like, it's a drama movie. It's like, you can count on me or something, you know, like, which I adore, but like, they don't make those that very often. And so it's one of those hard things where if you've written that, they're like, hey, great, go write a thriller. Like you look at someone like Shea Hatton, he wrote Maximum Overdrive or Maximum King rather. And like that was really out there and cool. But it, what he wrote the next script, Ballerina, was really the thing that blew him up and kind of moved yeah. into that action horror thriller category, you know, that he's kind of mined really successfully since. So like that is kind of, if he'd just written, he was just writing biopics his whole career, there's not a lot of biopics that get made, you know, and if they do, they're going with people who already won Academy Awards for writing biopics, mm-hmm. you know? So that's something I've kind of learned, which is like, if you're going to get on the blacklist for something and it's not super commercial, it gets made, you better have the next, it'll get you a lot of attention on you, but what, it's going to be about the next script and like, it's going to get a lot of eyes on you. So it's like, okay, now that you've got fans and attention around town, the next script is going to have to be commercial and more in the vein of the kind of things that the town likes to make and they see a clear path. So that was a learning experience for me, honestly. Mm-hmm. So when clients or I guess new writers, if they're trying to, you know, get your attention or whatever, and they're coming to you with like that next script and like, let's say they have something you're like, we need to kind of work on the next thing. And this has actually happened to me. So it's so weird that we're, I'm like talking as though it's like clients. Yeah, I know. It's just like, I'm in the metaverse. Uh, what if you had a client called Josh Holman? So <laughs> he was thinking of some ideas. So let me tell you a couple of these ideas Josh is thinking of. Yeah. Um, Let's do it live on the air. <laughs> yes, John critiques Josh's ideas. That's what I want. Josh is like, Listen, get me the popcorn. You, you, you joke about this, but actually Jay-Z, we had said oh we, that we had, we're not doing this now, but I was like, Next we, episode, we, we do said, together. After we do this, I'm going to propose to Jay-Z. We just throw like the craziest ideas and see, like get his uh, expert opinion on them. And uh, Well, the other thing about ideas that's always interesting is like I kind of reference this, like ideas <laughs> important, right? Yeah. Like there's an idea that I, I will not mention the project, but I read about it today in the trades and it's getting made, by the way. And I was like, this is an idea that literally has been made 20 times. Like this particular idea, mm. this sci-fi kind of concept has been done. I'm like, it's getting made again, so I guess people must like it, but it's like really dull to me. So it's like, what's the idea? And also, where is it heading towards in your career? Like, where does it push you towards? Where, if the script doesn't sell, does, do we feel like it's a great sample to get you work in that direction? You know? Yeah. And it's oh, I think I've done like a thread about this, which is like, you want it to all be moving towards a direction in your career. You want it all to be kind of moving towards something. 
Um, and that's, yeah, some, that's, some... that's something that I talk a lot about with my manager where great Tasha, you have this pitch. I want you to be able to create a pitch that if you don't get the job, you could, you now that, that work you just put into that pitch, you could now maybe tailor it into a spec that you could write and like further your mm -hmm. career. So it's not just a wasted month of, exactly. of nothing. So yeah, it's interesting that you articulate it that way. Cause absolutely. You know, Tasha, we're not talking about other managers today. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry <laughs> to bring up forbidden no, 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 I'm <laughs> topics. All right. So then, so if, if someone's coming to you with this idea, like it's usually in log line form, right? And that's what I prefer. Yeah. 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 And so can you determine based off of a log line? Like, yeah, that's it. Generally, yes. I mean, the thing is some clients and people don't believe they're like, how could you tell? But like, <laughs> if you ever talk to someone, they're like, hey, what's that new movie about a new Mark Wahlberg movie about? And you're like, oh, it's about a spy who forgets he's a spy. And you're like, oh, I feel like I've seen it before. But OK, like you describe other movies yeah. and TV shows that way. Why are people like surprised? They're like, and they, they, would the person be like, I, Tell me more. I refuse to make a judgment based on a sentence yeah, that you yeah, told yeah. me. That's what marketing is. That's what the 15 second TV ad is. That's the little like movie poster for Uncharted in the bottom right corner of your web browser, you know? Mm -hmm. And like, that is just how it is. Look, I don't care if it's two sentences. That's, I'm not like, you know, 14 characters are bust or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but generally you can tell pretty clearly because here's the thing that people forget. They're like, you should read the script and make every determination from that. Cool. Okay. So let's say a CE or VP reads the script and they like it. They go to their boss and press in production and they say, we got to buy the script. And they go, what's it about? And they go, it's about a spy who forgets he's a spy. And they go, yeah, I feel like I've seen it. Like, you can't, you're not going to tell the press in production. You got to read it. You can't make it. Like, and the head of the marketing, who's also getting in on the decision-making process and the COO of the company and, or they go to the movie star or the director and they go to the director's agent. You know, these are, these are the things that we make value judgments on. And so honestly, like, whether it's a sentence or two or a paragraph, like, sure. But like, to me, is there a value difference between a paragraph and a three-page document? Like, yeah, I, I've never read, I've never had someone like send me a, a couple sentences and then I'm like, nah, then they wrote into a three-page version. I'm like, what? I didn't see this, you know? I'm sure it could happen. I'm not saying that it's impossible, but generally I think, you know, we make value judgments a lot in this industry, um, even just as consumers. Yeah. One time, I don't know if you remember this, Jay-Z, but Tasha, one time I sent John some uh, ideas. I think you were like, just send me a couple log lines, whatever. And I actually sent you like a four page document. It was like, a, and you're like, I'm only going to read this for you. I was like, thank you, Jay-Z. <laughs> <laughs> even though I specifically said, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that makes all the sense. And then what happens if it's like a passion project? If so, if it's, if if someone comes to you and they're like, hey, I need to write about like the time my child and I went to Florida or whatever, you know, and it's, it. I'm look, I'm just the advisor. I'm not the boss. Yeah. I would never tell a client you can't write that unless it was like racist, homophobic, like toxic of some extreme kind of like, I don't want anything to do with that. You know, um, yeah, I would course. never call a person. You can't do that. They can do whatever they want. I'm not paying them a salary. I'm not their boss, you know, but I, my, I view my job really as, um, to some degree, as setting expectations correctly. You know, if I tell you don't write a $200 million Western and you do it instead, and I'm like, okay, I'll take it out, but like, I think we're going to have a problem here. Mm -hmm. And then, like, if you get a bunch of passes, I'm mean, like, and you're like, what? Yeah. I can't believe this. You know, I'm like, well, it's kind of what I suspected. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's if someone wrote it, their passion project, and I was like, hey, like, I totally have no problem with you wanting to do that, but just be aware that this will be a really difficult one 
even if it gets made, you probably won't get very much money from it. And they're okay with that. That's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I will, if, if, especially if something's well-written, I will always put my energy behind it. You know, it's funny. Um, Chris Devlin um, had written this script called Cobweb and he actually wrote, wrote the first two thirds of it. And then we really liked it, but we we're like, this is really tough. It's like, but an eight year old boy who hears an, a noise, you know, and we're like, I remember actually this is what happened. Chris had written a script called Rich Emily Derringer and the main character was a 13 year old girl. And he was trying to write his next feature after that and took a minute to kind of figure out the right thing. And Chris called me up and he's like, I have the next script. It's done. And I was like, great. As long as it's not about children, I feel like I can sell it. He's like, okay, it's about an eight year old boy. Oh fuck. And, um, but he, you know, did finish it and we took it out. And I remember I sent it, I read it and it was phenomenally written. And I emailed, I, I, I called his agent up. Um, and I was like, Hey, you know, scripts coming in. And then we either talked about it even before or after. And I was like, look, it's a phenomenal piece of writing. It'll remind everyone in town what an amazing writer Chris Thomas Devlin is. I think it's going to be an uphill battle to sell for the very fact that the main character is an eight year old boy. But I think we go to everyone in town with us and make sure they're aware of it. Um, and then, so we, Charlie Ferraro, myself and Jeff Porton, who co-manages Chris, we took it out and, and it ended up being something that Roy Lee over for Andrew Childs loved it over Vertigo, who took it to Roy Lee, who loved it. Um, and then, you know, we took it to, they took it to Lionsgate and Lionsgate bought it. And it actually is in post-production now with Sam Bowden directing and amazing, cool cast and Point Grey came on to produce it as well. Um, and so, you know, that was something where literally like we did not expect to sell that. And I don't know that Chris necessarily expected to sell it either, but we did know it was a phenomenal piece of writing. Wow. But I always give people, I always give people their day in court and, and try to do right by the script. Can we reverse engineer this idea for just a second too? So if we get to the writer sending you log lines before they even get to that point, what makes you say no to this log line, but yes to this? What goes through your brain when you're making those choices to the writer? Does it feel like something that other people would want to read, honestly, or that I would want to read? You know, I guess, I guess all you ever have to go by is like what something that I would want to read, you know, that I would find interesting. And that, I mean, sometimes, by the way, it is something that I'm like, like, here's the thing. If someone's already been on the blacklist and they read in their, they're like, here's a blacklisty idea, right? Like, let's say the guys who wrote the Fleetwood Mac biopic, Rumors, which was in the blacklist. And they're like, now we want to do an Aerosmith biopic. I'm like, guys, I, I don't know that that's really going to change your career at all, right? Because yeah. you don't have the music rights. It's really hard to get it done, et cetera, et cetera. We kind of got the boost for your career from from Rumors necessarily, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's that's it. But it really goes back to would I love to read this? Do I feel like this is – and that's just what anyone has to do, right? It's like do I feel like this is something that if I call people, they'd be excited about, you know? Um, and you just have to kind of make that, that value call. I think I read all the trades. I'm aware of all the, as much as I can be aware of all the projects that are out there. I talk to executives all day. Like there was a weird thing, like a few years ago, I guess in the wake of Sicario, I was getting like a million (laughs) clients were pitching me and I was getting a million scripts through queries and blacklist and, and projects, whatever. They're always about a cartel moves in next door and there's like, or it's like the cartel next door or I'm dating a cartel member mm. and then like a home invasion happens. It was like weird. There was like a lot of those things, a lot of cartel movies right after Sicario, you know? And I was like, and they were just, and, and nobody, and they weren't getting made by the way, or they weren't selling. And I was like, so it was something I can speak to and be like, Hey, that feels like something that that's very familiar in the marketplace, you know? And that's something I can like, by the way, that, or sometimes like that exact project is, so here's a funny story. Uh, which is before I was a manager, I think as, as Josh knows, before I was a manager or a producer, I wanted to be a writer. And I'm an immigrant. I'm from Canada. And I had this idea. I'm like, oh, wow, what if 
because you know when you get married uh, they have a person who kind of comes and like approves your your marriage right mm -hmm. and this is all these before i was married i had this idea and i was like oh wow like what if like the guy who inspects green card marriages fell in love with a woman who's in a fake marriage and then he's torn because if he reports the marriage is fake she'll get deported but if he like otherwise but he has to do his job and she's in a fake marriage and all this kind of stuff and so i i wrote a whole script um that my buddy bobby sablas produced and we were like really proud of it um and then we took it out to like some agents and this agent was like, oh, yeah, my client sold that to Universal six months ago. And we were like, wait, what? And it had sold. It was by a famous writer. I forget who. But they didn't put the log line into the article. The article just said, you know, it examines like, you know, you know, marriage in the current immigration moment or something. Mm -hmm. They didn't put it in there. And so we found out after the fact it was like the exact same log line. Oh, and I was man. like, oh, fuck me. Oh, um, so I try to avoid my clients, you know, being in that situation, you know. Um, you know, so Tasha, to answer your question, I guess the simple answer is, is it something that I'm excited to read? Does it feel like something that moves me? And obviously you can speak to like, well, your personal biases and stuff like that. But like, that's just the, that, you know, I, I, the mistakes I've made in my life have been when I've been like, well, I don't like this, but maybe other people will. And like, you know, like signing a client who I'm not excited about, but other people seem to like, or doing something for like the reason of like, well, I, I think this is what people want, even though I'm not particularly interested in it. And I think when writers do the same thing, it's even worse because, you know, it's like that thing I said where people are like, I'm writing a horror movie. Well, do you like horror movies? No, I hate them, but they seem to get made a lot. And I'm like, oh, yeah, they usually get made by people who like them, you yeah. know? <laughs> and so like, if you're doing something for purely mercenary reasons, more often than not, it doesn't work out because it's hard enough to, to write a great script if you love the genre it's almost impossible if you dislike the genre um, or the topic you're working on. So that's just totally the, agree. you know, and I, I wish I had a friend ask me once, he's like, could you write like a page or two about how, you know, if a script is good or not? <laughs> and I was like, I just can't, honestly, it's not math. It's just, you read it and you vibe with it or you don't vibe mm -hmm. with it. Um, but, you know, I think I'm good at spotting ideas and spotting talent. And like, that's why I've had a successful career as a manager is those abilities, I think. But they took a while to figure out, you know, and it took a, I, I didn't become a manager until I was 35, I think, um, 34, 35, you know, so I had a whole long career of failing previously. So, but those, that kind of gave me, helped teach me the skills and what to look for and what to spot, really. Let me ask you a question. Because recently, actually, going back to Ian, he had uh, put a thread on Twitter about one of, uh, one tweet that he, about some of his scripts being re resurrected, basically. Yeah, And so I'm not speaking out of term. It was on Twitter. So can you just speak to how that happens with scripts, not Ian's, but just in general, like if someone were to write a script five years later, I'm trying to think like, I mean, like the problem is there's no like one way. It's like, well, you just put it into the recycling bin and then people pick it up. Um, you know, it's interesting. One of them was a, is a studio project that an executive has come on board and really is really now champion. I'm trying to think what the other ones were. One is one that I'm a producer on. And we got a call email from this guy and he was like, I've always loved the script from since I read it five years ago and wow. I want to do something with it. And I was like, cool, yeah, go with it. And, and Did that, was just that just a cold call or had he met Ian on cold, a general? And call. He had just no, he, I think UTA had sent it to him like six years earlier or something, you know, he's like, I've always loved that script and now I have a chance to do something with it. You know, that weird script always, something's always happening with this particular script. It's interesting. It had literally been optioned right before the pandemic by a company that was going to make it for like foreign sales. And then the pandemic destroyed the company. Yeah. I mean, look, but there's also like, sometimes people are like, like, I don't tell everybody 
uh, I, I didn't tell you this, Josh. I'm t- is live on the podcast. Oh, Someone actually reached out to me about Father Daughter Day, like the other day. What, you know, what? they're like, "Hey, I, I love Father Daughter Day. Can I get a, another reread? I think there might be an opportunity with it." You know, but like people have done that with Father Daughter Day and other projects constantly to me, and then I just never hear from them again, right? So like, I don't bother telling clients about that stuff <laughs> wait, wait, unless wait. we're live on their podcast. Where the fuck? Uh, I had a until joke. like something comes from it. I think yeah. Josh, are you crying? <laughs> You know, I love that. Script. But it's not the first time someone's hit me up about Father Daughter Day, or as you know, um, uh, I forget what it's called now. The engagement, you the know, engagement had, um, got changed a few. It's called uh, Spy in Law now. Right? Yeah, yeah. But my point is, people do hit me up about uh, client scripts because one of the things I do is I get them pretty wide, right? And like they mm-hmm. kind of circulate out there. And sometimes people come back and be like, "Hey, I remember that I read this script nine months ago, and I always loved it. Whatever happened with it, you know?" Yeah. Someone, you know, two people hit me up about rumors in like the last week, you know. But like, the reality is, for these people who kind of hit you up out of the blue, yeah, ninety-five percent of the time, like I have someone I won't mention who uh, I know very well, and we've worked together. And I, whenever something happens, they're like, they're always, they're like, they literally start booking the steak dinner. They're like, oh man, it's happening this time, you know. And I'm like, but it's not, you know. Like, let's book the steak dinner when the check comes in. That yeah. person um, and I have a very different way of approaching this. Yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Well, I, that person's not really in the business anymore. I think it kind of broke their heart. But um, but yeah, like for me, it's more like I'll believe it when the check clears, you know. Yeah. So it just happens constantly. But all you can really do is put the workout, good work out there as wide as possible. And when op- and like again, I like as part of like we were asking about my day. I talk to executives and financiers and people all day long, right? Producers, etc. And I've, they're like, "Oh, we're looking for a sports movie. Well, here's a sports movie that I have. Or we're looking for uh, an action comedy. Well, here's Father Daughter Day. You know, like we're always sending it to people um, and hoping that like lightning strikes. Mm-hmm. You know, most yeah. of the time it doesn't. Sometimes it does. You know, but it usually doesn't. Yeah, but. Yeah. You know, I mean, Dave Co- David Cogshall, I think, was talking about, I don't know if I pronounced David's name properly, but he was talking about a script of his that had come back to life. That Lily really ca- He learned about it because they were in casting sessions. And Lee Daniels has recently rewritten it and is directing it. And it's like mm-hmm. literally a go movie, you know? And like, I think that was news to David's up until like a month or two before the announcement, you know? Um, yeah. To be fair, I think it was like an assignment, so it wasn't necessarily a spec. I'm, I'm not quite sure on the genesis of it. Um, but, you know, it is one of those things where, you know, I really do think a good script never dies. It's a little harder in the TV world, I think, to resurrect things. There's a little more onus or stink on things. Although scripts have been resurrected. Like Mad Men was a sample that got uh, Matthew Weiner onto The Sopranos and nobody gave a shit about it. Um, and then a buddy of mine who worked at Industry Entertainment happened to be in a meeting when they were starting up AMC and was like, oh, I remember the script called Mad Men a while ago. I'll send it over to you. And, you know, this is all kind of well-documented. So, like, you know, it doesn't happen as often in TV where things get resurrected, I, I, I have noticed. Yeah. But it does happen. And in features, it can happen, I think, with a little more regularity. I mean, what can be a heartbreak, though, I would say, is sometimes, you know, you end up with a, if a script gets purchased and there's a bunch of money against it, like, I guess I'll explain that. Let's say let someone buys your script for half a million dollars, right? They purchase it outright. Uh, and then this company goes under or like something happens and it's not going to get made, then for another company to pick that script up, they'd have to pay back the half a million dollars and probably interest costs and like any development costs they tacked onto it, you know? And so that can be a little bit of a heartbreak um, where, you know, if there's a significant amount of money against a project, that can be harder to kind of resurrect it, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's something you're kind of aware of. Yeah. Man. 
Okay, so I have a really juicy question. Can I ask it? It's juicy oh. to me. Oh, shit. It's your podcast. So the, <laughs> the answer is always yes. All right. So the, the biggest complaint writers have is that they feel like their reps aren't representing them, right? That's mm-hmm. just a common complaint. Could they you have. define what you mean by not representing them? I can. Yeah. They oh. talk about not getting generals. They talk about not getting phone calls or emails returned in a quick or at all manner um they say hey i want to get staffed that's my plan for the year and they're not being set up on any staffing meetings so my question to you is obviously it's not because all managers and and agents are jerks there's a there's a point of view that you guys have of a why this might be happening with your client so can you kind of talk to because here's my thing we as writers have a time risk management thing that's how we decide which projects we want to spend our mm-hmm. attention on i'm assuming mm-hmm. that's the same with reps can you just kind of speak mm-hmm. to why that might be happening for some clients yeah absolutely i mean look it's not as josh knows it's not how i operate whatsoever um so it's me speaking as a theoretical concern really more than a practical uh certainly anything i have any mm-hmm. I, I am uh to a fault responsive on email <laughs> and yeah. text Although I don't like clients to text me because that is something I can ignore a little too easily and then I forget to respond down the road. But yeah, I'm a very responsive guy. So it's not something I ever really come into. I mean, I'm sure there are reasons clients will get frustrated with me or something, but it usually doesn't come down. Usually it's more like we have a difference of vision going forward for their career or something. Or I mean, often it's because I like shot down all their ideas and they don't like that. And they're like, I want to go do my own thing. So that's fine, which is fine. You have to trust. I think a big part of being a, I think the most important part of the represent- representative and, and writer and client relationship is trust. And if you don't trust your manager or agent's judgment anymore, then you have a problem and you probably should not be working together. I think that the bigger question is probably why aren't they getting generals? Why aren't they getting staffed? And writers are so frustrated because they wish they had an answer, but they don't understand. I mean, the answer probably is because your agent or manager doesn't think they can make money for you. I mean, that's the easy answer, right? That's the simplest answer is like, because you haven't proven yourself to be a money-making client, mm-hmm. so therefore they are uh, actively just ignoring you. I mean, like, that's weird to me. I would just drop the person at that point, you know, um, if I felt like, so, for me, I don't drop people because like, they don't quote unquote make me money. I drop them because it's not because they don't make me money, but because I don't necessarily, I don't know that where you're heading in your career is a direction I necessarily believe in is going to make mm-hmm. either of us money, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's, I, I'm less reactive than proactive, I guess. I'm like, if I see where this is going, then I'm going to cut it off, really, you know? I wish more reps did that, honestly, because I think you're right. They, they keep them on the hook because maybe this person will make me money and I don't have to do any work on that. So what would you recommend for a client? Because you are so hands-on with clients. If they're mm-hmm. if they have a rep who's, who's not... You got to fire them. Yeah. Like, I, there's no other answer to that. Yeah. It's it, Look, if you put it in dating terms, these things become crystal clear, Yeah. right? Which is often that is a decent reference point for representation relationships. If you were dating someone, they didn't return your phone calls or emails and you never saw them and they were unresponsive, what would you do? Like, that's the problem is like, we're telling somebody they already know. They're like, my agent doesn't return my phone calls or emails, doesn't set me up for generals. Then you don't really have one, do you? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, and the reality is most agents... And some managers have client lists going into the hundreds and they're just like, who are the people who make me money? Those are the people I'm responsive to. Yeah. Look, agents are inherently going to be less responsive, I think. And that's why it's important, I think, to have a good manager because managers are good or can be good at corralling agents, you know, and making them pay attention. You know, I mean, look, if your representation is non-responsive to you, I think you can either be like, 
I mean, you can break up with them, but they kind of already broke up with you, right? They ghosted you, you know? Mm-hmm. And and if your answer is why is this happening, it's because they don't believe you can make the money. Yeah. Yeah. The end, right? Like, it's not a complex answer, right? Like, I think that's the sad part. Um, and, you know, like, why aren't they sending me for generals? Well, because the material, either A, they just don't care or believe in you at all. Or secondly, they don't believe in the sample that you have is is worthy of getting you generals. And by the way, sometimes it's not good enough. Like I have clients and I've, we took out a spec recently and I have this submission grid and it's like, I, I yellow is it's in submission. Green is they like it. Red is the pass. And honestly, I would say of the people I submit to, at least a third just never ever respond. And it's just basically what we call like, it's a pass. It's just like, I don't, I'm not going to chase them. But like if they've, if it's been two months since they read your script and you're like, gee, can you check in? Like, I think you know the answer, right? It's like, I went on a date with someone and they haven't responded to me for two months. I wonder what the situation is. I think you know the situation. <laughs> um, or there's a lot of red and yellow, you know, and, and it happens sometimes, you know, and so it, it's a bummer, you know? Um, yeah. And so look, sometimes it, you know, I mean, like I would certainly communicate that to people, right? The people, I think sometimes there's an idea of like, I was talking to a client and, you know, they were like, oh, I want to start going for studio rewrites. And I was like, well, you've never sold a project. You never had a project getting made. You've never written anything before. That's going to be really hard to do mm-hmm. until we accomplish those. You know, if there's the right opportunity, we'll put you up for. But it's not like, I think some people think once I get an agent or manager, it just goes, Ch-chunk, I'm in the studio system now and I punch my card and like I get the opportunities. It just, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. But I love your response, by the way, which is, I think, not a response a lot of writers get, which is, okay, you want to do that. You can't do it now because of X, Y, and Z reasons, but these are the things you can do to better your chances at doing that, which I, that's the guidance we're all craving from our manager, right? Versus just like, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll work on that and then just completely ghost the writer. <laughs> you have to look at people's actions and believe them, right? It's like that that saying, you know, whoever said it, Oprah, whoever, like when people act a certain <laughs> way, believe them. When Oprah. people show you they are, believe them. Uh, it's either it's 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 kind of been attributed to a million people. Yeah. When people show you who they are through their behavior, believe them. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, I mean, look, the thing I would say here's an actual piece of advice: if you believe that your representation that you need to fire them or they're not good for you anymore, my advice is to you: when you have a next something you really believe in, the next script you really believe in, don't share it with them. Drop them and use the new piece of material to go find a new person. Because what happens sometimes is people are like, hey, so my manager took out this spec, it didn't sell. Um, so I dropped them or they dropped me. Can you take out this spec that my manager already took out previously? And the answer is no, like it's old business. It didn't sell, unfortunately, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Now, maybe if we were to work together, I, I maybe I might like it as a piece of writing and then be like, cool, let's work on a news thing together. And I might use it as a sample for the right opportunity or the right thing comes aboard. But I think what have people are like, oh, I'm going to give my manager one last spec to see what they do with it, you know? Yeah. But like, once you do that, they can commission. So if a client, let's say somebody came to me and they're like, hey, I wrote this old spec, right? My manager took it out to 20 people. It didn't sell. So can you, I fired them or they fired me. Can you take it out? If I took that script out and it went to someone that, and if it went to someone that, Certainly if your manager had already submitted to them or honestly anybody, because they could argue I helped develop that, I gave notes on it or whatever, then your old manager could go to say, I want 10%, right? And that would be, into, or they want, I want to put 5% with John or whatever. I've seen it happen before, you know? Um, and so that's another just thing to get into. And I'm sure like people are like, well, legally, you don't actually have to pay them anything. And like, it's, I guess it's true. If you want to get into like some lawsuit legal sure. stuff and like, 
it just gets, but it certainly makes it awkward for everybody, right? It makes it really awkward from everybody. And by the way, you could like, we could blow them off and then they could, then they could go, if you sell it to someone, they could go to the buyer and like, this is something I've gotten in trouble on Twitter before. People are like, well, if you go to a court of law, the court of law says this. It's like, yeah, but let me tell you, if someone's lawyer calls up business affairs for a studio and they're in the middle of making your deal and they say, hey, by the way, did you know about these chain of title issues? The studio isn't going to be like, well, see them in court. The studio's going to be like, uh, this $80,000 purchase is not worth going to, law, going to, going to, going to uh, court over. We are walking away. Mm-hmm. If it's like a script from Aaron Sorkin, they're going to fight it, right? And they're also not going to fuck with Aaron Sorkin that way. But if it's a newbie writer who's not even in the guild yet or whatever, it's not, it's not, it's not worth it to them, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, like, I don't say that as, like, a nightmare scenario for people to, like, oh, my God, to, like, keep themselves up at night. The simple actionable advice is this. If you feel like your manager isn't working for you anymore, you should fire them. And you should not give them one last spec to, like, do their chances on you should go find somebody new and, and and use that 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 brand new piece of material by the way that also probably goes all the way back to don't get their notes on it yeah. right if you get notes from someone on it it just makes things really awkward yeah. and tricky legally morally ethically otherwise you know so like if you want to fire somebody don't you know fire them if Fire them and don't wait around for a point to fire them. Mm-hmm. It's my personal advice, right? Like if someone comes to you and says, if your friend came to you and said, I think my, my boyfriend doesn't return my calls anymore. He, you know, never talks to me. We never do anything anymore. You know, would you be like, I don't know. You should like give them like another six months and see what happens, right? Like people, when they ask for advice, generally know what they want to do. They're just looking for approval. And, you know, I think like, Honestly, like I saw on Twitter that like Mason and August talked about this and I would agree with them on this point, which is a bad manager is worse than no manager. And that's very hard for people to believe in the same way that people would rather be in a relationship, a a shitty relationship than have to be single again and deal with dating. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you are with a bad manager, it's getting in the way of you being with a good manager. If you're in a shitty relationship, it's getting in the way of you getting being in a good relationship. Yeah. You know? So like that is my thing. It's it's scary, but in my personal opinion, it's 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 it should be seen as freeing. You know? Yeah. Because if they weren't doing shit for you, then what are you losing exactly? Yeah, you just gotta fucking cut the cord. Be done. Yeah. It's hard to do though when you're a writer, you know. But so, but you're you're one hundred percent right. You have to believe in yourself. I believe yeah. there will be another manager out there who believes in you like you believe in you. It's very inspirational. <laughs> Should we do some quick rapid fire? Let's do some rapid fire Twitter questions. All right, all right. You ready, Jay-Z? This is the rapid fire. This is from Twitter. This is from Stephanie Brandolini. What are the worst and best queries you've ever received? Uh, The worst queries, there was someone who queried me and made fun of me and said, remember this one? He made fun (laughs) of me. He's like, your genes are ruled up. Leo would be ashamed. Or like you learned that from your boy Leo, didn't you? And they included a photo of me from a video podcast I did with Scripts and Scribes. And then they were like, and then they're like, by the way, read my screenplay. Um, and the, another one was like insane. It was like just basically like, I mean, there's so many bad ones. There's one mail to my house, like mm. her, my home address, like a lot of not a great ones, you know. But that one's the, the insulting one really sticks in my mind. Uh, the best one, I mean, like anyone that I signed somebody off of, um, I'm trying to think off the top of my, my head, like this, you know, there's just, there's no like one, like, I'm like, this was the greatest one I ever saw in my entire life. They're just, they seemed intriguing. And then the, cause I read a lot of queers cause the, the log line seems intriguing, which by the vi- definition makes them a victory. And then when I, when I, if I like the log line, I read the screenplay and, and does the screenplay live up to the log line? 
unfortunately not that often, but when it does, that's a great one. Then I'm happy. Then I've got someone I'm potentially going to sign. All right. This one is from at Brent Rolo. Is it okay to query a director slash producer through their rep if their contact is not listed on IMDb Pro? Uh, I mean, I think producers, you could just do directly to like the producer, you know, uh, but a director, sure. You know, uh, I, I don't think see that being a problem. That's certainly something I have people who've hit me up for, you know, my directors um, through me. So I don't think that's that's an issue for a producer, though. I think you could just read. I would be surprised if a producer didn't have some way to, like, get material to them out there. But if I sure if it's not, I'm sure it's I don't think it's a problem. Is yeah. the answer, no. mm-hmm. You probably won't get a response from an agent. This next one is from at Ringo Lee. We sort of talked about this, but you know, since I'm an honorable guy, I'm going to follow through and ask this Twitter question. What makes a manager sit up, listen, and consider taking on a client? Uh, I mean, obviously the first thing is great writing. Mm-hmm. That's why you're meeting with the person. And then I think you want to have a shared vision for the person's career, you know? And, and also, by the way, how to make some money, right? Which is like, because otherwise you're doing it as a charity, right? Like I only make money when my clients make money, you know? Um, and so like, how do we get you to success? And now that doesn't necessarily mean that they have to be writing studio movies all the time, but we want to figure out what success looks like um, and have a shared vision for that and a shared plan for how to get there. Um, yeah, that's that's the things I'm looking for a great writer um, who I believe in, who I think is collaborative and who I have a shared vision. We have a shared vision for their, what the future of their career would look like and how to get there. I love that. Tasha. All right. This one comes from at David Wales NM. A lot of interesting projects come out of European production companies. Do us based writers find opportunities there? I mean, I'm not really sure what he means. A lot of interesting projects come out of European based producers. Does he mean like the favorite or something? I'm not, uh, generally people in Europe tend to work with European writers more often than not. Um, I, you know, I I have had clients write for Studio Canal, for example, which is a European based company. Uh, Studio Canal did not, would really rather have not had to do that, honestly, because they get like bonuses or there's different tax things or something like that. So more often than not, they do not want to work with US based writers. I forget also what the WGA situation is with stuff like that. Um, but the answer is it doesn't happen that often, no. Mm-hmm. But it can happen, but not. it's certainly not a main focal point. All right, ready for this? This is from at Drunk Dracula. <laughs> Other than when it hits the screen, is a screenplay ever truly finished? I guess no. Damn. <laughs> All right, this will be our last question mm. via Twitter. This is it. This is another one from at David Wales NM, which you kind of answered already. We're going to go for it. I have three scripts in the same genre space, but there's another in an unconnected genre that needs work. Should I put in the effort to improve that script if I don't ultimately see myself in that space? Probably not. No, I would focus on making one script the bestest. That would be the thing I would put the attention in rather than like, you just that's what you want to do is focus on one maybe two scripts being the calling card you want to get out there in the world you know um that's what i would do the most as especially if it's a genre you're not particularly interested in i think one of the things i see sometimes with people and this may or may not be an example of that 
It's people are like, I had an idea for a comedy thing. I should write it. Well, do you want to write comedy? No, but I had a good idea. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's cool. But like, it's not, they have a little of a lottery ticket mentality, right? That like, anytime you have a good idea, you got to write the script. Just because, by the way, take it from me, a guy who is actually quite good at ideas, if I can say so. Same. But like, not a good enough writer to execute them. So like, I had the idea for Eli. So I brought it to David Churchill and he's the one who made it into an amazing, you know, movie, you know? Or, you know, the Blonde Ambition story was something I had heard about when I was back at NYU about the relationship between Jelly Beans and Madonna. And so I told to Elise, and Elise is one who wrote an amazing script of that. Having a great idea does not necessarily mean you are the right person to write it necessarily. So sometimes that comes a little bit out of people like, well, I got this great idea. And I'm like, cool, but like that doesn't mean that you're the person. What do you generally write? I really write horror. Would this be a really funny, like, you know, you know, uh, family comedy, don't you think? I'm like, yeah, it might be. But like maybe you're not the person to write that, given that that is not necessarily your area of focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Back to, that's full circle into like choosing your lane and, mm-hmm. and staying in it for a little bit. And you don't get. By the way, I would say you don't get stuck in that lane. You right. can break out of that lane, but you've got to write a script. If you want, if you want to get hired for comedies, but all you've ever written is horror, you've got to go spec a comedy script to prove your bona fides. Yeah. You know, but when you're starting a career, we're trying to establish people in a very, we're starting to, we're trying to, we can only put our effort in like six month kind of increments into one lane. You know, it's kind of funny because like, be like, I don't want to get stuck and pigeonholed into a lane. And I was like, Hey guys, did you hear David Fincher's directing comedy? They're like, that's crazy. (laughs) Or like David Fincher or Chris Nolan can be like pigeonholed. Right. But like, God forbid anybody else be, you know, I mean, so it is kind of one of those interesting things you kind of have to earn like if Paul Thomas Anderson's like, I'm going to direct an action movie, I think people would be like, that's okay, that's a little weird, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so it is one of the things, you can stretch them, but I think you kind of have to earn your place to do that. And honestly, here's a simple rule. Being truly great at one particular lane or genre, that in itself, you could take a, spend a lifetime perfecting, you know? Yeah. And so that would be my thing is getting truly great at one particular, you know, or two particular lanes, usually complementary. You know, like if you're a great thriller writer, you probably could write a great horror. You could probably write kind of a great panic room-esque kind of action movie or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. So like being truly great at something is at, in one particular lane is hard enough. And honestly, when we think of the great, you know, like again, like Aaron Sorkin's not out there writing action movies, you know? Um, the Fairley brothers are not directing you know, horror movies, you know, like it is one of those things where we kind of think about famous writers, writer directors, and they, they tend to stick to not always, but you know, certain kind of thing, you know, I really want to see an Aaron Sorkin action movie though. Like, so I mean, to be fair, he did do rewrites on like Crimson Tide, I think, and like Enemy of the State and things like that. So yeah, but we know where he did the rewrites, right? They're the parts (laughs) where someone's saying like, I'm never sick at sea, you know, (laughs) I got nothing more. That's it, Jay Z. That's all we have for you. I mean, thank you for sharing all of your. Thank you for having me on here. I, I, I I'm very, I'm very honored to finally have been worthy of of uh, of, of your podcast. Oh, well, I please. hope now you're you'll be a regular now that we popped the cherry. I, I, you know what? Anytime to the chance to chat with you guys and and you know get pitched juicy questions. Yes, I'm, I'm down anytime. <laughs> All right, we're going to wrap up with a quote of the day because I have to. It's just part of how I do this. Okay. Mm -hmm. Every rejection is an incremental payment on your dues that in some way will be translated back into your work. James Lee Burke. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram, Twitter at Tasha 3.0. 
I'm on Instagram. It's Josh Hallman, Joshua Hallman on Twitter. And Jay-Z, I feel like everyone already knows, but if you want to just say where you can be found. Uh, my, my first and last name, John Zalzner. Go there for all the, you know, recaps and continuous, you know, and, and how, you know, ruin your career by using it. Things like that. <laughs> As always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Bag, which you can find on Spotify. Spotify.